In 2016, the small African democracy of Mauritius announced the launch of a Safe City Project, a digital public security initiative using equipment from the People's Republic of China vendor Huawei. Shrouded in opacity and set up outside normal oversight mechanisms, the project raised serious concerns for democratic accountability. How will these new digital surveillance tools affect governance in Mauritius and who stands to gain from the data they collect? The Mauritius Safe City Project is one of the many smart city initiatives that are transforming municipal governance around the globe. The term smart city can describe a wide range of projects, from offering free public Wi-Fi to installing sensors that monitor energy use, traffic flows, or the faces of passersby. Supporters argue that these systems will make governance more efficient and accessible. But without firm democratic guardrails, efforts to make cities smart could speed the slide toward digital authoritarianism. I'm Chris Walker, Vice President for Studies and Analysis at the National Endowment for Democracy. I'm Beth Curley, Program Officer at NED. You're listening to Power 3.0, a podcast bridging the gap between ideas and practice on global challenges to democracy. We talk with civic activists, experts, and thinkers from around the world about critical challenges, such as defending against disinformation or fighting corruption and kleptocracy, as well as challenges on the horizon, like emerging technologies and their implications for democracy. We're joined today by Rukaya Kasanali, a democracy scholar and associate professor at the University of Mauritius. She is also the chair of the Electoral Institute for Sustainable Democracy in Africa and an alumna of the National Endowment for Democracy's Reagan Fassell Democracy Fellows Program. Her essay, Is Digitalization Endangering Democracy in Mauritius?, was published in the forum's recent collection, Smart Cities and Democratic Vulnerabilities, which you can find at www.ned.org ideas. Rukhaya, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me to the podcast. Great to have you here. To set the stage for our conversation today, we'd like to ask you to share a little of your history and background with our listeners. You're a longtime democracy scholar with experience spanning the media, academic, and nonprofit sectors. How did you first get involved in this field, and what experiences have most shaped your views? Well, I have been in academia for some 20 years now, working in the area of media and democracy based at the University of Mauritius. I also had the opportunity to work in a number of African countries and witness what I believe at first hand, the challenges, but also the opportunities deployed to support independent media and organize clean and competitive elections. As I started to observe elections in African countries, I realized the dynamics of local civic organizations to invest in clean elections. And I then increasingly became conscious of the flaws and what I call limitations of my own country's democratic model. Mauritius is often celebrated as a model of democracy to be emulated in Africa. But there are a number of flaws that need to be highlighted and understood. This actually directed my work around party politics, cost of elections, coalitions and alliance of politics. And today, even more than before, I think putting the spotlight on the causes of the erosion of democracy in the Mauritian democratic model is fundamental. I've also traveled and engaged with a number of people in different countries in Africa, and I've learned methodologies of civic engagement around elections. I've witnessed the resilience of a number of communities that face danger and repression, but I've also been able to navigate both across Francophone and Anglophone Africa because I am bilingual, and that has made me a better, more tolerant, and what I believe a complete Africanist. 
Rukaya, recently you've been doing some really fantastic research on the deployment of Huawei safe city systems in Mauritius. In your essay for the International Forum, you write that Mauritius Safe Cities Project emerged through an opaque, irregular process. Through your research, you've tried to pull back the curtain on this process. Why did you decide it was important to learn more about the Safe City Project, and what have you found out so far? What triggered my interest was the statement that was made in Parliament in 2016-2017 around the national budget speech. And it was read by the Minister of Finance that the government is coming up with a safe city project as a pilot basis. You know, it just dropped from the sky and no one really knew about that. So prior to that, there was nothing that was mentioned about whether the safe city project was important or relevant. We had heard about the need to upgrade the CCTV camera of the police, but never a safe city. It was launched in 2019 with some 4,000 cameras, of which 2,760 cameras are till date operational. These cameras have both facial and license plate recognition. I started to really dig into the Safe City project as part of the Hoover Institute China Global Shop Power project, in which I was invited to contribute an essay. And in fact, what I found was that the project came following what we believe was an unsolicited bid from Huawei. Never was there a full-blown project actually envisaged. And this full-blown project is costing the merchant taxpayer something to the tune of 455 million US dollars. So there has been a lot of opacity and a lot of closed doors about why this project came. The second element that really caught my attention was the usual procurement process was not followed. There's a procurement act in Mauritius that ensures transparency of projects, but this was bypassed. And the government of Mauritius selected the Mauritius Telecom to provide security equipment, related hardware and software and licenses for the Mauritius Safe City. The supplier in this particular case was Huawei. So again, the choice of the Mauritius Telecom was calculated, as the latter is a private company which escapes any form of public scrutiny. The second element was a contract that was signed between Huawei and Mauritius Telecom, and there was no way of finding any details pertaining to the contract. A second contract was also signed with the Mauritius Police Force. The Mauritius Police Force has the jurisdiction of the Mauritius Safe City Project. And again, there was a confidentiality clause that locked any form of information to be disclosed. So this escaped public scrutiny. The second element, which was a cause for concern, was the ownership and use of data. We were not sure about who was actually owning the data. Is it the government of Mauritius? Is it the Mauritius police? Because we believe that there is a framework called the Main Command and Control Center, which hosts and stores data for a maximum of 30 days. But after that, where did that data go? There was a suggestion that this data went into the cloud. Was the cloud owned by Huawei? Was it owned by the government of China? So there was a lot of mystery. There was a lot of confusion. There was a lot of lack of information about really where the data was going on. The third element also that I found was the narrative around safety and security. It was being pushed to justify the Mauritius Safe City project, but it was not really convincing because cameras and footage were not always available when they were needed. And there was a particular case that drew my attention. 
there was the murder of a political agent in 2020. And when the footage of the camera, of the Safe City camera was sought, it had miraculously disappeared. So we wonder, you know, in terms of really what usage is the footage of the Safe City being used? Is it being used to really promote security and safety? Or is it all about surveillance and control? And I think the last element that really brought my attention was the utility of such a project, costing 450 million US dollars to a small island state, brought in a lot of question in terms of the public debt that that would ensue. So these were some of the findings that made me realize that this was a project that needed to be brought into the public space. Thanks, Rukaya. So clearly a number of causes for concern there. And I'd like to turn a bit to how that intersects with the broader political context in Mauritius. One concern that's been very central to our emerging technology work here at the Forum is what happens when governments acquire new digital tools in an environment of democratic backsliding. This is a challenge that people are facing across all regions with the world in what Freedom House calls the 16th year of democratic backsliding. And in your essay, you write that you see signs of democratic backsliding in Mauritius as well. How does that political context shape decision making around the Mauritius Safe City project? And what might it mean when we think about that project's future impact? A very important question, and I think it also situates and contextualizes the coming of the Mauritius Safe City project. In fact, it came with the absence of a well-thought legal and regulatory framework. And that was very important to highlight because the absence of such a dedicated legal and regulatory framework allows the Mauritius Safe City to lend itself to abuse and control. In fact, the Mauritius Safe City operates currently under the Mauritius Data Protection Act of 2017. And Section 44 stipulates clearly that personal data shall be exempt from any provision of this Act, where the non-application of such provision would be, in the opinion of the Prime Minister, be required for the purpose of the safeguard of national security, defence and public security. So here we find one person, the prime minister, being able to, through his authority, reverse the act's ability to protect data privacy and protection. So I think this is the greatest concern around how is a safe city or how can the safe city be used in the hands of control and surveillance. And in fact, since its proposal in 2016 and its inauguration and rolling out in 2019, we see that the political context in Mauritius has become extremely fraught. There has been the intimidation of opposition members. There's been the crackdown on citizens. There's been the slow collapse of key institutions. There has been the instrumentalization of the police force. Anti-corruption agencies have been captured. The independence of the central bank has been compromised. And the list goes on. In fact, a number of key organizations have actually situated, and when I look at Mauritius' democratic decline, it situates itself more or less around when the safe city happened. We need to, to actually dig a little bit more into that. But, you know, VDEM in its 2021-22 report identifies Mauritius as one of the top autocratizing countries in the world. The Afrobarometer 8 and 9 round talks about the drop and decline of satisfaction in democracy among Mauritian citizens. And the latest international idea that came out last week actually talks about the slow decline of Mauritius as one of its top highlights. So when we look at the Mauritius Safe City project, I believe personally it is just another feather in what I call the authoritarian toolkit and that the current regime and ruling party is using it to consolidate its power. So my greatest concern around the Mauritius 
Safe City project is the upcoming election of 2024. We are due for a general election in 2024, and we believe that the control and surveillance and fear can be used and data security can be sort of actioned upon and the movements of opposition party leaders to crush dissent, to discipline citizens, to rein in and bring in Brick Brother. So my concern is in the future around what that safe city can be used in a fully-fledged manner to actually crack down on dissent and control political parties and political and civil liberties. That's my greatest concern in the years to come. Thanks, Rukaya, for those important but also very sobering observations. Turning now for a moment to the external dimension of the Mauritius Safe City Project, you note that the controversial PRC-based vendor Huawei is the main promoter of safe cities across Africa and beyond. Why might Huawei's role in the Safe Cities Project be a cause for concern? And based on your experience in Mauritius, what recommendations would you make to researchers and activists in other settings where governments are acquiring or thinking about acquiring surveillance technology from Huawei? Thank you. I think this question about Huawei is, is a fundamental question, but we need to answer it without actually unnecessarily dealing with what some people call the Chinese bashing syndrome. I think one of the main concerns about Huawei is the manner in which it conducts its business. In the case of Mauritius specifically, Huawei has been present on the island since 2004. When we look at Huawei in Mauritius, we see what I call a quasi-monopoly of Huawei. It is in the retail business, it's in the infrastructure business, it's in the service business, and more importantly, since 2018, it has been in the knowledge production business. Let me give you a little bit more details. For example, in the infrastructure support system, it is the one that has rolled 3G, 4G, and is experimental with 5G on the island. It has a number of hardware supplier of government infrastructure. One of the key submarine cable that links Mauritius with one of its outer island, Rodrigue, has been actually installed by Huawei. As I mentioned, in the knowledge sector at the University of Mauritius, we have a Huawei Academy. And that Huawei Academy provides training, it provides certification around artificial intelligence, and that brings in this question around the training, the capacity building, both the software and the hardware presence of Huawei. And I think when you have such an omnipresence and ultimately an over-reliance on one service provider, it poses a number of questions in terms of your independence and your capacity to understand what such a monopoly is doing to your digital infrastructure. So I think that's the first concern about Huawei. It's omnipresence and it's quasi-monopoly within the digital information communication sector. In terms of recommendation, I think it is imperative to get government to bring it and drag these types of discussion into the public debate. Safe cities, big infrastructure, big ticket infrastructure financed by China eludes public scrutiny. It's never discussed in the public. You'll have never any public consultation whether such a project is important for the country. What value proposition such a project brings to making the lives of citizens better, to consolidating democracy, to creating a better society. So I think this conversation should imperatively be dragged into the public space, into the public sphere. I think we need to fight the culture of opacity and the culture of impunity which such projects bring. 
Yeah, it's important not only to call to account the PRC or Huawei has a service provider of such technology, but our own governments as well, because our own national governments thrive on such impunity and such non-accountability. So I think we need to make sure that national governments are brought into the public sphere to actually tell us why are they allowing such projects to be rolled out. The other element that I think is also very important is to create a coalition of continental advocacy network. We see a number of safe cities, of smart cities coming up in different parts of the continent. Lessons learned from the Mauritius case can actually help to avoid any trappings or any problems or any issues that similar countries has got. So I think a resilience, transnational coordination and coalition helps towards creating a better civil society engagement to actually counter such projects which only erode further democratic processes, especially in fragile and declining democracies. Thanks, Rakaya. Some really important points there about cooperation and experience sharing. And I will say that this pattern of opacity around big ticket digital projects is something that we've seen in other settings as well as highlighted in our recent report, The Global Struggle Over AI Surveillance. Turning a bit more into this question about looking at one's government's own practices, I know the Safe City Project is not the only recent initiative in the digital sphere that you see as concerning for Mauritian democracy. In April 2021, the country's Information and Communication Technologies Authority released a proposal to address the abuse and misuse of social media. This raised some concerns among Mauritian citizens as well as international advocacy groups. Can you tell us a bit about that controversy and how you see the relationship between surveillance of physical space through the Safe City Project and this earlier effort to surveil and control citizens' communications online? Thank you for this question. I think a little bit of context and background for some time we have seen, and this has accelerated since 2020, and it's actually gaining greater force in 2021 and in 2022. We've seen a number of citizens who are very often arbitrarily arrested for posting or sharing content online. And that was deemed as offensive as per the Information Communication Technology Act and Section 46 talks about offences where a message that might cause us annoyance. So a number of citizens were picked because their posts were deemed to be causing annoyance. And we saw a number of members of parliament from the ruling parties who use that particular uh, Section 46. And a number of journalists as well who have been harassed for running certain stories on commercial radio, private radio. A number of media houses have been slapped with hefty fines, but also a number of members of parliament have been outed or have been expelled from parliament by the speaker. And that we have seen since 2019 systematically. So that offers a background into the proposal of the Information Communication Technology proposal of April 21, as you mentioned. And the justification behind that was to regulate the use and addressing the abuse and misuse of social media. And the idea was to address harmful and illegal online content. And here, the approach was a three-prong approach. The first was to create a decision-making body for online content. The second was an enforcement unit. And the third one, which generated the greatest outrage, was the technical tool set. In fact, that tool set was to separate social media data out from broader flows of internet traffic in and out of Mauritius. And here, after that, social media data would then be routed through a government proxy server and be decrypted and re-encrypted and archived for inspection purposes when and if required. 
In fact, this was seen as a direct threat and interference to the free flow of information, the very much and highly cherished civil liberties and political rights of the Mauritian digital citizen. And the backlash was immediate. And I think it was very interesting that we saw some 1,500 responses. We saw the Mauritian civil society come together in this coalition. We also saw a continental support from NGOs to actually say no to this ICTA proposal. And very very quickly, the government shelved that particular project. But at the end of 2021, we saw a number of amendments to the Information Broadcasting Act and the Information Communication Technology Act and also the Cyber Security Acts, which have been abandoned to try and tighten up certain liberties. So I think for the moment, this controversial proposal has been shelved, but some civic advocates talk about it being, you might come back in the lineup to the 2024 general election. So I think we are not totally in safety, so we need to always and continuously be vigilant. But one good thing about that, it brought civil society together in this common voice towards, you know, saying no to these types of controls and intrusion and interference in our digital space. And Rukaya, before we bring our discussion to a close, I want to make sure we have a moment to talk about the issue of data collection, which is such a key ingredient of smart and safe city projects around the world. We've talked today about the risks linked to the abuse of data by both foreign actors and Mauritius's own government. What would you consider to be the most urgent steps Mauritius and other rapidly digitalizing countries should take to ensure that public projects which collect data follow democratic norms? And how can fragile democracies leverage the benefits of digitalization without undercutting human rights? I think this is a fundamental question, and thanks for bringing that, Chris. I think, indeed, many of us who are in the data space realize that data is one of the greatest curse of our current society, but it also has infinite value, and it has to be used very wisely, and we need to know how to learn how to use it wisely. I think in the case of Mauritius, it's a very important point in our existence as a small island state. We sit in the middle of the Indian Ocean region, and this Indian Ocean region at the moment is really at the height of a geopolitical battleground between superpowers and middle powers and traditional powers. And when you look at the Indian Ocean Island and talking about data, we have at least have counted five submarine cable crisscrossing the region. And that transports a lot of data across the ocean, sensitive data and so on and so forth. When we talk about data sovereignty and data security, in Mauritius, we've witnessed recently an episode known as a sniffing case, where there was a presumed data interception interference at the center by a foreign entity. So I think it demonstrates in a very, very succinct way the vulnerability of a small island state, and that's the case of Mauritius. Now, the most urgent steps that we should consider as we engage into this data economy is to have a dedicated regulatory and legal framework around digital infrastructure. Some countries have it, but some countries do not action upon it. Implementation of the full force of the protection and the legal and regulatory protection for citizens is not there. The second element is to when and how to justify the term national security. 
We've seen on many occasions national governments using the national security trump card to sort of hide behind those issues and they can very easily allow interference and control to happen. So I think this national security trump card is too often open-ended and vague and very often used and abused by national governments. So I think we have to be very careful in understanding what national security means. And national security should also include human security because I think citizens are also very much at stake and at risk when we're talking about exposing the security and the national data of certain digital citizens. I think extremely important, and some countries are starting to invest in that, is to equip citizens with their digital skills. They need to know their rights, they need to know their responsibilities, they need to know how to navigate that digital maze. And I think when they are more informed and aware, they're able to sort of hit back in an organized and structured way. And I think we've seen in a number of countries, at least in Africa, a number of citizens following the data. So follow the data, make data public, make it transparent and make it open. Digitalization is a common good, but I think citizens should fight constantly, continuously for that space not to be captured, not to be manipulated and not to be compromised. I think we need to pay attention where digitalization equipment comes from. And when loans are being dangled in front of our eyes, we have to be careful about what those loans entail. I think sometimes we embark into digital infrastructure projects, which are great pro-pay projects for government to show that, well, we have attained digitalization, but there are always trappings, there are always uh, catch issues that we need to be attentive to. So be attentive to loans, be attentive to where the loans are coming from, be attentive to where the digital equipment is coming from, and be equipped with the knowledge to be able to navigate that digital maze. Thanks, Rakaya. So a wide range of recommendations there for both governments and societies will clearly require a whole of society effort. And picking up on that question of knowledge about digital affairs before we go, I just wanted to leave our listeners with a recommendation. So is there one book or article that you'd like to suggest for those who would like to learn more about how smart cities and other applications of emerging technologies are impacting democracy? I think I was very much impressed by the work of Stephen Felsten, The Rise of Digital Oppression, How Technology is Reshaping Power, Politics and Resistance. It helped me in the various work that I've been doing around digital surveillance and authoritarianization. Thanks, Stephen, for such a great piece. Stephen is a longtime friend of the forum, so we'll be sure to let him know when next we speak. And thanks again, Rukaya, for such a fantastic discussion on a wide range of issues that you so clearly um, articulated. And I think all of our listeners have benefited from your insights. Thank you, Chris. And thank you, Beth. And thank you to the forum for allowing me to participate in this exciting podcast. That's all for today's episode of the Power 3.0 podcast. For more on these issues, check out our companion blog, Power 3.0, Understanding Modern Authoritarian Influence. You can find additional resources, including our recent report, Smart Cities and Democratic Vulnerabilities, on the NED website at www.ned.org ideas. And join the conversation with us on Facebook and Twitter, where you can find us at Think Democracy. For those who are interested in learning more about the global implications of smart city projects, tune in to NED's YouTube channel on February 7th at 12 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time for a public virtual discussion featuring Rukaya, fellow report contributor Barbara Simeo, and Stanford University's Larry Diamond.
We'll be talking more about the Mauritius Safe City Project, as well as the hopes and pitfalls of smart city governance in Brazil and how smart cities intersect with the global democratic recession. To watch the event live or view the recording, visit the link in the description of this podcast. Power 3.0 is brought to you by the International Forum for Democratic Studies at the National Endowment for Democracy. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please leave us five stars and a comment on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever podcast app you use. Special thanks to our podcast production team at the International Forum, especially producer and sound engineer Jocelyn Broadfuhrer. We hope you enjoyed the episode and we'll tune in again next time.